This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Health and Living with me, Lim Su. And part of learning how to manage your mental health is finding a support system that works for you. But telling friends and family that you're struggling can be hard. And on the other side of that conversation, if someone is opening up to you about their mental health struggles, it can be equally difficult to figure out what you should say or do. So this is the fourth and final episode of our mini-series, My Mind and Me, which explores what it looks like to seek help for your mental health. And to discuss today's topic, I'm joined by licensed and registered counsellor, Carol Chung. Thank you so much for joining me today, Carol. Thank you so much for having me, Sue Ann. Always happy to, you know, be part of this Mental Health Awareness Initiative. Mm, glad to have you on. Now, if you missed our previous episodes, um, which looked at how to look for a qualified mental health provider, what happens during therapy, and also about that journey about dealing with a mental health disorder diagnosis, you can look up um, those podcasts by searching for My Mind and Me on bfm.my or on the BFM app. But coming back to today's topic, you know, um, Carol, I want to break up our discussion into two broad categories today. One from the perspective of someone who is struggling with mental health and wants to um, and, and wants some guidance on how to tell others about what they're going through and on the flip side you know from the perspective of someone who is listening to um, a loved one or a friend on what to do in, in such circumstances now from the perspective of you know if I'm struggling with my mental health you know what role can friends and family actually play for someone who is in that position? Because we always hear from mental health providers like yourself or others with lived experience that it's important to find that support within your community. Yes, that's right. I mean, people who have that support do very much better in their healing and recovery process. People who do not have that support struggle a lot may not be completed at all. So from the perspective of what a friend can do, I would say that in the very first instance, do become familiar with common mental health issues. You know, just be, just read up, just listen to BFM, you know, just uh, get yourself that kind of exposure as to what mental health issues are, what mental health problems are common. So the most common ones are stress, anxiety and depression, you know, mm-hmm. together they make up something like 40% of all mental health issues and disorders so you know get used to that Uh, get get familiar with what these things are what some of the common symptoms are and how to differentiate between normal and out of the normal suffering Uh, another very common thing that everybody in our lives goes through at some point is grief what is normal grief and what is abnormal grief how long does typically last uh, what does what does a very complicated and abnormal grief look like? When is it time to step in and you know give somebody some help? So how would the role of a friend or a family be different from what your mental health provider is doing for you? So I would say that you know uh, the fam the the help from family and friends is kind of like lay help, mm-hmm. um, common day help. And uh, they are very, very important. You can be very, very important in terms of the emotional and support, mm-hmm. uh, emotional and physical support that you can give uh, your suffering friend. So emotional support could be in terms of a listening ear, a shoulder to cry on, a comforting hug, your presence, giving the person your time, um, inviting the person out to activities, helping the person with a normal daily task, which may suddenly have become very difficult or impossible to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 
role of a friend. Mental health providers give more specialized help. We are trained to support the person as well as to help in the healing process. But as compared to friends and family, we cannot be around as much as friends and family can. At most, what is it, an hour, an mm-hmm. hour, and every week or every two weeks, you know, given the fact that mental health support is not cheap. Yeah. I don't know anybody who sees their mental health provider every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we quite as available to that person. But we are trained in active and effective listening. We are trained in uh, identifying, exploring and excavating the underlying issues and using different modalities depending on the kind of training that we've had to target these underlying issues. So for example, an underlying issue of, you know, like struggling at work or mm-hmm. in, in university or school be the core belief of I'm not good enough. So apart from just talking, which friends would do, uh, a trained therapist could use things like cognitive behavioral therapy, a CBT to help that person. Yeah. So I, for example, am trained in DBT, which is used with personality disorders. Um, I'm certified in CTRT, Satya therapy, and I'm primarily a trauma therapist using uh, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy, which is EMDRT. So that's very specialized and it focuses on trauma, either single event trauma or even uh, things like attachment trauma or trauma growing up. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to say, oh, it's the same now whether you talk to a friend or you talk to a mental health provider. Mm-hmm. It certainly isn't. It's like you can tell a friend that your your tooth is aching and your friend is saying, oh, poor thing, you know, maybe it's this or it's that. Uh, shall I drive you to the dentist? Yeah, but you certainly wouldn't want your friend to go and drill your tooth or or extract tooth for you. So that's the difference between the lay help and the uh, mental health providers. Mm. But it doesn't make the role of your friend, even in the case of a toothache, driving you to the dentist or or just making sure that you're all right during that time. It doesn't make that role any less important, right? Absolutely not, because maybe your friend has got no transport. Mm It's absolutely important, which is why I said that friends can play play this very important role of emotional and physical support over and beyond what a therapist can do because, you know, we we won't drive you to the the dentist. And in the case of someone who is perhaps going to, um, who is receiving mental health help from um, mental health services from the public sector, your your frequency of seeing your therapist might be even longer and, and that's where the role of friends and family become even more important. You have a supportive friend and family network. Firstly, your, your chances of recovering fully are much higher and your recovery process is smoother and faster. So, Definitely, mm. friends mm. and family are very important. Mm. Now, getting into the opening up to friends and family aspect of our conversation, what usually stops someone from doing that, you know, to, from talking about what mental health issues that they're facing or perhaps that they're seeing a therapist or maybe even that they've been diagnosed with a mental health disorder? What are usually their fears? In one word, judgment. That's the biggest fear. They are so afraid that the people whom they care about, you know, if you're talking to your family or friends, these are people who are significant people in your life. They're so afraid that people think you're crazy, you're weak, you're abnormal. Uh, Am I freaky? Will they think I'm freaky? These are words which are not coming from me. These are the words which have come from the many clients that I've seen over my 30 years of counseling. 
There's also the, you know, I don't think anybody can help me. There's a, there's a great sense of helplessness or there's a sense of they may think, uh, oh, therapy is so expensive. I can't afford it, you know. So I, I don't want to put this burden on my family. Yeah. So these are the various things that may be going through their mind. But first and foremost, taking that very first step, fear of judgment. Some people are even fearful of um, a therapist's judgment. Mm. You know, it's bad, yeah. Mm. So if you want to talk to someone, right, how do you even decide who to tell? I think first and foremost, it's somebody whom you trust and you're comfortable with. You wouldn't go tell some random stranger or, you know, some random person in the in the office whom you've never spoken to before or only high by, yeah. Uh, somebody whom you perceive to be non-judgmental, that you've had conversations before with them and, you know, they say things that you feel very comfortable with that they're not judgmental. Someone who has previously shared their own moments of struggle, especially with mental uh, mm. mental health. So then you know, hey, you know, this person has gone through hard times before and this person is more likely to be, to be, um, to know what I'm talking about and to feel for me. So um, I used to work in a university, but I'm in private practice uh, freelance now. But mm-hmm. when I work in university, um, I uh, mentored a group of students who called themselves the mental health uh, ambassadors. And the first thing I would give is um, training in awareness and first responder reactions, you know, on the spot. What do you say to your friends? And I also encourage them to share their own struggles. And if they are comfortable, if they have had experience in therapy, to share that experience in therapy. So that just kind of like prepares the, the uh, lays the groundwork, I think, for someone who is struggling with mental health uh, issues to be able to come up to you and say, um, hey, I heard that you've had therapy before. What was the experience like? You know, you could start that way. And then along the line for the person to say, you know, I've really been struggling at work or at school, you know. Um, this is what I've been going through. I wonder whether it's the same as yours, uh, your experience. Um, how do I go about the process of seeing somebody to get help for this? You know, mm. so that's all begins. Mm. Deciding who to tell is that first step, right? If you found someone that you 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 trust, that you feel comfortable with, that you think it won't be judgmental um, towards you, but it can still be a daunting process. So what other advice do you have on how to get the ball rolling in terms of, I guess, how you want to do it, um, when, or perhaps even deciding on what or how much to say? Yeah, uh, definitely it is difficult. That very first step is very, very difficult. Um I think it's always easier if you don't keep everything and hide everything and then tell everything in one big go and, you know, you're already um, totally overwhelmed and on the brink of collapse. Mm-hmm. So it's actually better if you have that kind of relationship with friends and with family to begin sharing little bits. You know, I'm finding my coursework really difficult. I'm not sure if I made the right choice to go into engineering, you know, that kind of thing. So you're actually preparing the ground as well, bit by bit by bit, you know. Uh, I don't seem to be able, I don't seem to understand my classes. I have so much difficulty doing my my, uh, assignments. I've sought help here, I've sought help there, and yet I'm struggling. So already you're preparing them, so it's not a bombshell. Mm finally do tell them, then it's it's uh, possible to say, you know, you know, I've been struggling for the past two months. 
uh, and semester is coming to an end. But, you know, I really feel like I just can't take the exams. I feel I don't feel prepared to take the exams. I just am so fearful that I'm going to fail. And, you know, so that, that is that's a that's a build up to it. And uh, the person will be uh, the hearer will be more prepared. The person you've chosen will be slightly more prepared for what you have to say to them. Mm. And that's in the context of, for example, someone in university or in school who's taking classes. And I guess the same could be applied if you're struggling with anything else in work, right? You could be saying that, well, I haven't been sleeping much because I've been worried about this. I haven't been able to eat well because I've been worried about that, for example. Absolutely. Or marital problems, domestic violence, etc. But if they know that you've been, we've been fighting a lot, you know, uh, he's not been coming home, he just storms out. He throws things about, you know, when he's, uh, I'm sorry that I'm using the masculine gender. She throws things about, you know, although uh, the, the studies do show that a lot of domestic violence is actually male perpetrators. Yeah, probably because in general, men are bigger and stronger, but it doesn't mean that there are no female perpetrators. So I don't want to dismiss and discount, you know, men who are also in uh, violent relationships. Mm. So I guess the general idea is to provide examples, right, of how whatever that you're worried about has been impacting you in your daily routines. Yes. So your struggles, and you know, you build them up. So you you have actually been uh, telling little bits, so that by the time you tell the biggie, like you know, uh, he or she punched me in the face or something like that, it's a shock, but it's not as big of a shock as it would have been if you had kept up that facade of the perfect happily ever after marriage for example and then out of the blue you say that oh no actually I've been abused yeah Mm. What about um, telling the person why you're talking to them about this? I guess in the sense that you know should people be telling um, others just because you want to share this or because you want them to provide something in return to support you? It's actually really good if you're able to articulate yourself so well. So when I work with clients, for example, and when I encourage them to seek help mm-hmm. uh, from, the, uh, from their community, uh, apart from the help that they're getting from me, um, I ask them to, to try to be specific about what they need. So it's actually a training process. So you don't just say, I'm upset, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. then leave the person like scrambling, what shall I do? Shall I make you a cup of coffee? Shall I, you know, you mm-hmm. don't know. And you could just say, I'm upset, give me a hug. It could be could as I, simple as that. It could be as simple as that, you know. <laughs> in fact, that's something I practice on my own as well. I come back from a hard day at work and I walk in and I, uh, whichever random son whom I see it comes across my path, I say, mom's had a really hard day at work, you know, could you hold me a while? And that's what they do, just put their arms around me and I just put my head on their chest and then they hold me for a while and then I feel better, right? Uh, so it could be that, could you help me do this? Could you help me look for a lawyer? Good company to a counsellor's office. Can you help me to find out, uh, you know, what's the difference between a psychiatrist, a clinical a psychologist and a counsellor? I, I want to see someone to get help, but I don't know who I should see. So you ask for the specific help that you require. Yeah, giving them something specific. Can you help me with this? And then help is often quite forthcoming. Now, the person may not know. Huh? If you say, oh, you know, I'm struggling with a drug, a substance abuse issue, and I and I think I need to go into rehab. The person may have no idea at all about uh, drug rehab services in Malaysia. But the, but if you're the helper, you could say, um, I really don't know about much about it right now, but could you give me three days or a week and let me find out more? Mm. You don't have 
have all the answers on the spot. I don't have all the answers on the spot when my clients ask me, but I say, I'll find out and I'll get back to you. And I always do. Even if the answer is, I'm sorry, I don't really, I don't think there's such a specific therapist in Malaysia. But, you know, I found other therapists who are in the area, but maybe not the specific one that you want. Hmm. All right. Um, we'll go for a quick break now, Carol, and continue this discussion. When we come back, I'm speaking today to licensed and registered counsellor Carol Chung about how to find your support system and in return how to support others as well for our mini series, My Mind and Me. Keep it here on Health and Living BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, Lim Su An. On the show with me today is Carol Chung, a licensed and registered counsellor, joining me for our fourth episode of our mini-series, My Mind and Me, on what it looks like to seek help for your mental health. So this is the fourth episode, and today we are looking into how to find that support system, um, how to talk about what you're going through when it comes to your mental health. Now, before the break, Carol provided some advice, guidance on how you can get the ball rolling, how you can think about who you want to talk to and how you want to talk about it. Um, and one very important thing that you mentioned um, almost at the start, Carol, was that how a lot of people fear um, judgment when they want to open up to others. So what if the person that you're talking to isn't responding the way you want it or isn't responding empathetically? How should someone react in that moment? Because it can be, it's already so traumatizing to do that. That could potentially make things worse. Right, you are, you are absolutely correct. So your choice of person to tell and how you're going to tell and when you're going to tell is also important. So, for example, I said that you lay the groundwork by already telling about, you know, the stresses that you're having or the difficulties that you're having, whichever the context is in school, at work, at home, you know, in a relationship. And if to your initial sharing, the person comes across as empathetic, judgmental or dismissive, I would say don't share. <laughs> Find somebody else, you know. Uh, but but if your first few sentences go through smoothly, then you begin to share more and more. So you share half a paragraph, then you share a paragraph. So you don't jump in and share an hour-long narrative with a person immediately and overwhelm that person as well. Mm. You share small bits and then at each moment you... You are also gauging, you're also assessing the person's um, openness or receptivity to what you have to say. And if you find that the receptivity is there, the openness is there, the empathy is there, then you share more details. So you always start vague, a general overall picture. Uh, that is actually to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. so you don't well, you know, either dismissing, oh, yeah, everybody goes through this one, you know, or worse, going behind your back and telling other people about the, the issues that you're having, right? So that's what I would say, do it slow, gauge, assess, you are also assessing. It's not just about having one conversation and then you're done, it's having a series of conversation over time. Correct. And small little ones first, just, just testing the ground, you know. For example, when my LGBT clients want to come out to friends or family, it's also about gauging, you know, the kinds of conversations that are going on. And if, it, if there's a lot of, for example, gay bashing or, you know, uh, uh, jokes made at the expense of the LGBT community, then maybe this is not, these are not the people you want to 
to uh, tell, or these are not the people you want to come out with first when you're still all fragile and 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 afraid. You know, uh, you might want to come out more strongly when you're far more confident about who you are and you don't care anymore. You know about what these people think about you. Then that's fine. But right at the very beginning, choose your audience well. Mm. All right. And now I want to move into, I guess, the other half of the conversation, which we've been touching on um, on and off, but about how you can support someone who is struggling, right? If you're on the other end, you're the one who's listening. Um, I guess for most people, you know, if if you've never had um, such a conversation before, what might they be feeling or thinking, you know, what would be going through their heads when a close friend or loved one suddenly is opening up to you about their mental health, even if in small increments? I think you're very right in when you say that if you've never had that experience before, because the person's response very much depends on their awareness, mm. the exposure and the experience, you know, that that's what we're referring to. Um on the positive side, uh, if the person has awareness or exposure, even if it's just uh, academic, you know, you've just been listening to talks and all that, and the person is close to you, they're probably already aware that something is amiss. You're picking your up life, on the signs. You know? Correct, you know, yeah. And they're probably so glad that you reached out and ready to help because, you know, it's also very difficult for people. They see that you're struggling but they don't know whether it's appropriate to ask you if it's okay. Mm -hmm. So um, therapists are in a way kind of like really thick skin because this is our job and we know that. So when, when, when my friend dies, I say, hey, what's wrong? You know, your face is so long. This is not the usual you. Mm -hmm. I will immediately bring it up, you know. But uh, lay people may feel, oh, it's, you know, I don't want to seem so capable. Mm -hmm. You know, if she's having problems with marriage, I should not be asking about it. You know, so they have also have a lot of... Uh, um, reservations and doubts in their minds mm. yeah but for some so that's a positive reaction is that oh i'm so glad that you told you told me what can i do to help you know how can i support you on the negative side of course people could be stunned people could feel very sad and and worried for it, which isn't negative but you know like to the point that they are overwhelmed and they feel helpless oh no 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 what can i do mm. you know uh, of course the Super judgment, a uh, super bad one would be being judgmental and thinking, ah, yeah, small problem like that also cannot solve on your own. Mm. How do you then convey, or I guess make it obvious to your friends or your family that you know you want and are able to provide a safe space for them to talk about what they're going through? Because, like you said earlier, you may feel that it's inappropriate to ask directly. So, how do you convey that? Yeah. So um, as I said earlier, I mean, first and foremost, get that get a bit of mental health awareness and training if possible. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the other thing that you could do is to uh, make yourself available to that person. And as I said earlier, like when I ran the when I mentored uh, the mental health ambassadors in that university, I teach them to share their story or little bits of their story. So there again, you're laying the groundwork. So if, for example, you think that it's a marital issue and you yourself are married, and then you might say, oh, you know, uh, well, you know, for me, I'm, I'm quite long in the tooth. So I might say, yeah, you know, in the early 
early years of my marriage, you know, there were some problems. It's not, you know, you get married and then you think that, you know, everything's hunky-dory, you know, after that, we're going to live happily forever, forever after. But the first three years were really tough, you know. So you're laying that groundwork and, and, and you're softening the ground so that the person can like say, okay, maybe she understands. Maybe if I tell her that we're fighting every single day, she won't be judgmental, you know. So that kind of thing, yeah, might might be helpful. Saying that maybe you struggle with your studies, or um, I, I remember when I was counselling uh, medical students, and then uh, one of my medical friends who was a lecturer told me a story, and then I said, "Would you allow me to share this?" And she said, "Yeah, go ahead and share it." And then I said, "Hey, you know, Doctor So and So, who who is very well liked, very respected," and I said, "Do you know that she failed failed the year?" And one of the professors was very, very well regarded, like huge in his field, you know. He's dropped a year or two in medical school as well. And when I tell the medical students that they became, they like, oh, okay, okay, you know. So it's normal to like struggle. It doesn't mm. mean that I'm not for the medical profession. I can still go on to be taught in my field. So sharing those stories just, just makes it easier for people to talk about their own struggles. Mm. Now, the, op- the the flip side of sharing is providing a shoulder to lean on, an ear for someone to talk to, right? Why does listening help? And and what I've read about in my research on this is that it's important to provide active listening, right? Could you um, explain what, what that is, Carol? Okay. Yeah. Listening helps first and foremost because it provides an outlet. So it's a relief to that person bringing an out. If the person can talk about it, that already like reduces half the pressure on the person. The people I'm most worried about are the highly introverted, not very social ones uh, without close family relationships who bottle everything up and are so fearful of sharing. And the other ones who are very likely at some point to just erupt and have a complete emotional uh, or mental breakdown. So if you think of um, talking as like, uh, you know, your, your friend is a pressure cooker, the pressure and the stress is building up. And it's the old style of pressure cooker where you've got that release valve and it releases pressure every now and then. If you think of talking as that kind of a release, then that's what your listening gives that person. And when you're able to, uh, to listen actively and to also be able to show, so in we call it reflecting, mm-hmm. we reflect. Content. We paraphrase the stories, uh, not parrot, but paraphrase. We paraphrase what the person has told us, summarize it, so the person feels heard. Oh, she was paying attention to me. She knows my story. We then reflect feelings. We then talk about the feelings. You must have felt very frustrated. You must have felt so lost. Uh, this, this must have seemed very confusing to you. Then they feel that their emotions are heard. If you're spot on, they'll say, oh my God, you know, that's exactly how I felt. Thank thank goodness you understand. So they feel understood, they feel heard, and they're thinking to themselves, I'm not crazy after all. This is really a big problem. So the fact that I'm cracking under the pressure of this problem is just normal. Anybody would crack under this pressure. Mm, You're validating their feelings, right? Absolutely. Mm. I've also come across, um, you know, articles and people saying that it's important to be empathetic rather than sympathetic. What's the difference between those two? And I guess, how do you show that? Because it can seem like such a fine line between those two um, feelings. Yeah. 
for me, sympathy is kind of like uh, you know what the person is going through, but you don't really uh, feel what that person is going through. So it's actually possible for people to say things like, oh, you poor thing, Ayo, your situation is so tough. Or oh, where shall we go for lunch? Ah? Oh, yeah, you know, you are saying the right things, you know the person is there, but there is the empathy is not there. So empathy is being able to put yourself in that person's shoes. And I think you show it by sitting with them in that space for an adequate period of time, holding their hands either physically or metaphorically, but just being there, giving that safe space for their emotions to come out. Mm -hmm. And then when all of that comes out, then you can gently urge some kind of forward movement. No. Oftentimes, we say that we try to be non-judgmental, but there is unfortunately a lot of internalized stigma, um, unconscious biases that we that that um, like it says right, we don't realize. How do we check ourselves so that we don't accidentally say the quote-unquote wrong thing? Okay, yeah. Um, first and foremost is to give time and space for the other person to talk and for you yourself to really listen. So you listen for as long as the person wants to talk. Be aware that if it's a very difficult subject, like physical and sexual abuse, for example, it's very difficult for the person to talk. So the person may, be, may not be able to speak as um, eloquently and smoothly and without pause as we are doing you know, in, uh, at this moment. There could be long, long pauses while they are collecting their thoughts so you as the hearer need to be comfortable with long silences and long pauses as well and not jump in with your own take on what's happening. I think that's something that we often do and you see that in normal conversation, it's okay, you know, like your friend will say, oh, you know, uh, I'm planning to go to Greece. Oh yeah, I go to Greece before that. For the next half hour, you're talking about your Greek. But when it comes to this kind of conversation, we don't that do that with and we do a lot of the, mm-hmm, uh-huh, mm-hmm, uh-huh. Oh, okay, yes. Just to show that we are still with them. Mm. Um, and and then what happened? Um, how did you feel? You know, but very gentle, very slow, and allowing them those pauses. Sometimes if the pause is too long, then you can fill it in with a paraphrase of what they just said, and then with an invitation to go further. And so he came home and started breaking things. And then, you know, uh, you, you took you, you put the children in the room and then you came out. And then what happened after that? Mm. So gently coax them to come up with their story. So uh, as a practitioner, practitioner, in particular, in the very first session that I have with a client, which we call the intake session, very often it's like a 90-10 ratio. 90% of the time the client is speaking, and I'm just, mm-hmm, aha, mm-hmm, aha. And it's only at the last 10% that I try to bring together everything that the client has said, try to identify the underlying cause and then suggest a course of action forward. Or sometimes there may be so much, we may have run out of time and I say, we'll follow this up again. This is a summary of what I've heard from you today. And we'll pick it up the next session and then we'll talk about how we can go forward with this. So there's a lot, a tremendous amount of listening, first and foremost. 
So unconscious judgments would be saying things like, yeah, small matter only, everyone also goes through this. So you are actually inferring that a person is weak. Mm. And you and you know, if it's an issue, other people, it's not an issue. Another uh, a trigger phrase that many of my clients complain about is, don't be so sensitive, flaw. You must learn to be tougher, which is again a judgment. Mm. Launching into your own stories of struggle after hearing one or two sentences is dismissive of the person's story, right? And exaggerated reactions and body language. You've got to handle your body language as well. I am in my social life a very expressive person and I fling my arms all over the place. I'm the kind of person who is, if you sit next to me, be careful, you might get hit. (laughs) In therapy, I control all of that without the exaggerated movements and expressions. So when somebody tells you something, you don't say, oh my God, you see the judgment is already there. Oh oh my God, you've taken drugs. Oh oh my God, whatever. You know, that, that loud reaction. Watch your facial expressions. The ooh, you know, the cringing, the mm. this, all of those are judgmental. So if you think that something important is coming, then keep calm. Don't give a list of possible solutions. Don't go into problem-solving mode. Some people are amazing problem solvers. They may be very good managers, but they may not be very good listeners. Because giving a whole list of possible solutions makes the person feel weak and stupid. Why didn't I think of that? Mm. Or, Miss, you think I'm so stupid, man. You think I haven't tried that? Mm. It It goes back to what you were saying earlier, Carol, about you as the individual, I guess, and, and on this side, listening to what they want from you, right? Do they just want someone to listen to them? Do they want you to provide solutions and, and not just come to your own conclusions? Correct. But if you, so uh, when it comes to solutions, so, so one thing you could say is, is there any way I can help you with this? And the person may say, no, I just need somebody to talk to. Mm. I just need a hug now and then. Right. Or the person would say, I don't know how to get out of this situation. Then your next sentence could be, what have you tried so far to overcome the situation? Then let the person list what they have done. Then you know whether anything you're about to suggest has already been done. So don't repeat. Then you could validate the person by saying, wow, you've already tried so many things. I can understand why you are so frustrated and feel so hopeless about it. Let's put our heads together and see whether there's anything else that we can think about. You may already have two solutions in your mind, you know, Mm -hmm. two possible solutions. But you give that openness, talk about it for another minute or two, and then you say, um, have you tried talking to your boss's supervisor? Would that help? Have you tried talking to HR? Would that help you think? Then you get their input and then move forward from there. So it's a dance. We always say that, you know, good therapy and good counselling is a dance. You move forward when the person takes a step back. You move backward when the person takes a, a step forward. And you go with the flow. You're not like, you know, working against each other, stepping on each other's toes. So that's one way of doing it. Yeah. Hmm. I can imagine for the layperson, things could potentially become awkward, right? If you're trying to figure out how to respond, what to say. Is saying nothing better than saying the wrong thing? You are absolutely correct. Uh, and in our profession, we always say first do no harm. The principle of non-maleficence, then try to do good, but mm-hmm. first no harm. So if you're going to say the wrong thing, say nothing at all. 
But better than saying nothing at all, even when you don't know what to say, mm -hmm. is to say things like, oh, this is so difficult and complicated, I really don't know what to say. That is also validating. Mm. Because acknowledging that it's difficult and complicated, you're acknowledging that you're stumped. So if your friend is stumped, it's okay, we're stumped together. Let's, let's talk about it a bit more and, and see whether we can see any way out. Right? That's one way of doing it. Or to say, I've never been through this before. I have no idea what you're going through, but I really want to help if I can. Tell me how I can help you. So again, this is coming from a place of knowing nothing. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's validating and supporting. Mm. To round up our discussion, would you have a final message um, about what we're talking today about finding that community support? It's kind of like a cart and horse issue, which comes first, right? The people need support and they're trying to look for it from the community. In order for them to find it, there must be support available within the community. Mm -hmm. We're talking about friends, we're talking about family, we're talking maybe of uh, church groups or NGOs or even a corporation, your colleagues, right? Mm. I think it's really good if uh, people can look for uh, mental health awareness courses Get that knowledge. You can get it online. You can get it by attending courses. You can get it by asking your office or your institution, whatever, to find such courses for you. Get somebody in to talk to you about these things, you know. I think the community must be prepared first, right? It's just like search and rescue and all that, you know. You don't wait until a landslide happens and then you say, hey, who can help, huh? You know? You be prepared. You to, yes, have those processes in place have certain groups that you know can uh, respond to these situations. The moment something happens, all these people are immediately, um, you know, uh, informed and then they can send help. But in our personal capacity, just learn about mental health issues. And by the way, mental health issues are not abnormal and uncommon. According to WHO, Within our entire lifetimes, from zero to whatever time, 80 plus or what, you know, most uh, common lifespan, 30% of us will have a diagnosable mental health illness. Mm -hmm. Whether seek help and are diagnosed or not is a separate matter, but 30%. That's you, me, and if there's somebody seated near you, um, Sue Ann, one of us. Mm -hmm have a diagnosable mental health issue. Given that it's so prevalent, how can we not know more about it? How can we not find out a little bit more about it? Because, I mean, how many people do we know? Are we fairly close to minimum 30, 50? There are going to be 10 to 20 people in your immediate vicinity who may need help now mm -hmm. or may your support one day so that's my message be aware be prepared all right thank you so much for joining me today carol thank you and it's a pleasure to be here thank you so much for having me I've been speaking to licensed and registered counsellor Carol Chong for the fourth and final episode of our mini-series My Mind and Me about what it looks like to seek help for your mental health. If you missed any part of today's show or you want to check out previous episodes of the series, you can look them up on bfm.my or on the BFM app by searching for My Mind and Me. I'm Lim Suen and this has been Health and Living BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.